Hello, and welcome to He's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're watching a film called Love Me Tonight, which I think should be better known than it is. This is the first I've heard of it. You thought you were watching something different, like you did with Playtime. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, uh, and this is just me being silly, but I thought it was... Because uh, I bought it because it's a 4K restoration by Kino Lorber. But I thought it was a one hour with you, mm. which also stars Chevalier and uh, um, Jeanette MacDonald. Uh, but it's a Lubitsch film. So I thought we were watching a Lubitsch film. You know, but I was very happy to see it's Ruben Mamoulin. Uh, though it's a film that actually, surprisingly, I have never seen. Maybe because it hasn't been available. Though I do remember... When I was a kid and I would read film books, you know, it did crop up as an acknowledged classic. Yeah, it's right. just I've never had the opportunity of seeing it until now. So I looked it up before we saw it because he said we should watch this and um, discovered that it's, it's in the National Film Registry mm. and it's this musical. But I, I don't know the director. I didn't know the stars. I'd heard of Marie Chevalier, mm. uh, but I'd never seen one of his films. And it starts and immediately it's a charm offensive and I don't mean Chevalier, although mm. he is. But, you know, you notice right away, you, or you mention right away, there's such a sense of rhythm to this. Yes. It starts off like um, like Stomp or something, right? It's like, the, it, so it's 1932, so sound has recently come into the movies. And it really, really has this sense of trying anything, no. experimenting and playing. So the film begins with people waking up on the streets in the, the streets of Paris. The streets of Paris coming alive to rhythm and sound. Yeah, so people, so there's like a, a cobbler knocking nails into the heel of a shoe, mm. and that he does that with a rhythm. Mm. And there's people opening blinds, and that happens to a rhythm. And the things just start coming together in a rhythm, making a song. And then Marie Chevalier, you kind of you go in on this uh, sort of open window, and you see the straw hat and the silhouette that you recognise yeah. immediately. Yes. And Marie Chevalier is there, he starts singing about and, Paris in the morning. And he gets a great star entrance because the camera goes through the what the window yeah, of this attic, this glamorous attic in Paris, over the Paris rooftops. But uh, the camera enters, you see the hat first, then you see the silhouette, which is just a silhouette on the wall. And then there's this head coming out of this turtleneck. And of course, it's Chevalier, right? So yeah. it's, a, it's a magnificent star entrance, actually. It is. Um, and it's brilliant music. So the music is uh, written by Richard Rogers, and the lyrics are by... Lawrence Hart. Lawrence Hart. You were just telling me about. So who's Lawrence Hart? Well, uh, Lawrence Hart was, uh, uh, with Richard Rogers, one of the most famous uh, songwriting duos of their day. They had you know, an enormous amount of uh, hits, uh, and an enormous number of hits uh, in the 1920s and 30s. They're now most famous for uh, Pal Joey, Uh, so songs like Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, and Zip, and things like that. Uh, They were very sophisticated, very romantic songs of of longing and yearning, you know, very witty, uh, often with a a cynical edge, really, yeah. It really struck me in this, um, and maybe this is an unfair prejudice that I didn't even realise that I had, but upon seeing this, I thought... There's a sense to the lyrics, especially, but also to generally the kind of the the tone of the film, that there is so much more energy um, 
both visually and well, I suppose primarily visually, but also in, in the lyrics, like you say, there's so much more energy than I associate with films of this era. Uh. It feels kind of ahead of its time in in some respects. If- well, it's very much of its time, right? So, uh, you know, there are things that recall other musicals of, of the period. So initially I thought that the whole film would be sung, right? Because there's all this patter of nonsense lyrics, yeah, that are basically saying, hello, how are you, and stuff like that, right? Which is very typical of the Busby Berkeley, yeah, mm. uh, Warner Brothers films of the period, except these are witty and they're full of sexual innuendo. So so they're both of its time, but just like a better, more sophisticated uh, example. Though, you know, One Hour With You is pretty great, you know, like mm. kind of, uh, and, and pretty sophisticated. So I suppose this is what uh, uh, Jeanette MacDonald and uh, Maurice Chevalier together, you know, began to symbolize really yeah, a kind of, you know, a, a, a very sophisticated uh, uh, team uh, dealing with stories that often have to do with sex, yeah. Mm. Um, uh, and this is very much a film about sex, yeah. Yeah, so the story here is that Maurice Chevalier is a tailor in Paris and uh, this aristocrat comes in, has a suit made, doesn't pay for it. So to get his money back, uh, Chevalier travels to this essentially like a fairy tale castle, mm. chateau, out in the countryside, ends up pretending he's a baron. Because well, he was... doesn't pretend, which is important. Yes. He's introduced as a baron by the aristocrat who owes him money But he wants to suits, keep that a secret. But who wants to keep it a secret. So he's not lying. Yeah. yeah the can't... aristocrat is lying. That's important. Yeah, that's why I say he ends up sort of mm. pretending to be a baron because he's, he's sort of forced into it a little bit. He also falls in love with the kind of... Uh, I suppose the, the uh, eligible bachelorette of the mansion, if you mm. like, which is uh, Jeanette MacDonald. Yes. He encounters her on the road on the way there. His car's broken down and she rides up on a horse and immediately he's professing his love for her. It's very French. Yes. <laughs> it's very kind of Charles Boyer, uh-huh. sort of, you know. And of course, she she bats him away. You don't even know me. He says, well, my name's Maurice. Now you know me. You know? <laughs> um, eventually, uh, they, they fall in love. That's what happens. I mean, huge spoiler. Sorry, but it's a romantic musical. Yes. It's really lovely. There are very witty things uh, that are done with rhythm. Yeah, there's a whole scene where a deer is being chased and the deer is kind of going at this leisurely pace and the hunt is after him, you know, and actually you expect the worst. You expect that the, the, the punchline to what is being set up as a joke is that all the dogs will jump on the deer or something horrible. In fact, it turns out not to be the case at all. You expected that. I thought, no, that wouldn't be very funny. <laughs> well, you know, I, I thought times have changed. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, I didn't expect that. Although I didn't expect what happened either, which is that he kind of tames the deer and makes friends with it. And mm. he invites it into, his, into this little cottage. And, you know, so he kind of ends the hunt by saving the deer's life. Mm. Didn't expect that. I suppose I expected the deer to escape somehow. And, mm. You know, he would be involved in that. Um, which I guess is kind of what happens, but you know what I mean. Um, so it's still it's still an unusual sort of way for that scene to develop. Yes. Um, I really liked, uh, and this goes back to the lyrics. I really like how so many, so much dialogue happens in like rhyming couplets and yes. verse, but it's spoken. But it's yes. spoken, and then a kind of rhythm develops, and then a song develops out of it. But it happen- But it's like it starts off as these. Um, as like you said, these these witty conversations. So they are conversations that people are having, but they just happen to be rhyming. Mm. I think it's beautifully witty. And again, this is like this is where the film's charm offensive. It's kind of impossible not to like 
the way it's doing this. Yes. Um, I'm not a big fan of Jeanette McDonald's singing, though I actually I am a I am kind of, you know, uh, um, a fan of... She's very good at sophisticated comedy. So, you know, she's very good in One Hour With You. She's brilliant as the Merry Widow, uh, both for Lubitsch. Yeah, uh, she's very good at kind of doing sophisticated, ironic, kind of very highly stylized humor. As soon as she opens her mouth, that kind of, you know, soprano, operetta-style singing, which is actually she's not that great anyway, uh, kind of... You know, yeah. Um, I compared it to Florence Foster Jenkins. <laughs> yes, well, she wasn't little, that bad. A little uncharitable, mm-hmm. um, but it's, that, it's in that sort of tone. It's in yeah. that mode. Um, so, but I love the energy. I love, uh, you know, there's there's a real pleasure in um, the gags. The gags are rhythmic. So actually, it made me think of the Yusuf Shaheen films that I've been watching, and I forget the name, uh, but there's an early fifties film. Uh, where this man divorces uh, uh, or goes with his wife to stay with aunts and the house is full of, like, unmarried daughters. And Shaheen, you know, makes a joke just out of the rhythm of which they Mm. come down the stairs. And you realize this is where he got it from. Yeah, it's it's all happening here. Yeah, it's it's the the old aunts coming down the stairs or uh, Chevalier bouncing up the stairs, right? Like... Mm. Kind of a lot of the humor and a lot of the pleasures in the film, the really cinematic pleasures, right? Because they're all done through rhythm, yeah. And it's either yeah. the rhythm of a walk or the rhythm of the cutting, or yeah, it's kind of or actually the pace of the film itself. Yeah, yeah. it's based on a play, a French play that wasn't a musical either. Yes, um, obviously because the song's been written by uh, Rogers and Hart. Yeah, so it's um, a real cinematic. But yeah, has been made cinematic, yeah. and and I really think that I mean this is a. Brilliantly inventive, beautifully directed film, I think. Yes. So, you know, like I said, we started off with that thing of the song kind of emerging from uh, seeing Paris come to life. But then, you know, while I was reading on Wikipedia, um, that the song uh, Isn't It Romantic, which mm-hmm. is the second number that we get, was particularly noted as inventive at the time because it begins in the shop and then it starts cutting between different people as the song kind of is carried from the middle of Paris into a car yeah. out into the countryside and you cut between the, it seems very normal now but you cut between these locations and different sets of characters picking up the song in different locations mm. which is kind of wonderful and then you end up the song leads you from Paris from mm. your shop to yes. uh, uh, the princess yes. in the castle I mean right from the beginning we, sh- we said you know almost every shot is interesting right it's kind of beautiful mm. right it, it, there's a real visual imagination uh, right from the very beginning but then it goes even further than that. So a lot of the jokes are visual. So when uh, Chevalier is kicked out of the castle, right, and he is kind of worried or sees everybody else judge him, mm-hmm. he looks at them and, you know, they're shot from uh, the cameras right down on the floor. They're made to seem huge and looming and judgmental, yeah. right? So, you know, the, the joke and the feeling is coming just out of the angle, right? Yeah, and you hear, I can't remember what you're hearing, but you're hearing like voices in the soundtrack as well. Yes. You hear some judging him. No. He's just a tailor, isn't that something like that? That's he's right. just a tailor, he's just a tailor. Um, so he hears some sort of, you know, they're not saying it, but he's, it, it's in the air. Yes. And then he leaves, is this what you're getting to? Then he leaves and he's walking away from the castle. And she loves him by this point. She knows that, she's expressed that. And she's watching him leave and it dissolves, it partially dissolves. So she ends up superimposed over him leaving, going to the train station. 
and you end up with this amazing kind of set of shots, this beautiful composition of her face, yes, a large close-up, translucent, and behind it is the train leaving. Yes. It's incredibly expressive and beautiful. beautiful. I love uh, that. I also loved um, when they fall in love and they express, or she expresses her love for him in particular, he already is into her. Um, and she says, you know, I don't know who, don't, it doesn't matter who you are. She doesn't know he's a tailor, but it doesn't, doesn't matter who you are, whoever you are, wherever you are, I love you. Yes. And then he's asleep in bed and he's thinking back on it. And then he starts imagining him telling her, I'm a tailor. Oh, how romantic, she says. Yes. And then it goes into split screen yeah. and she shows up as well. And while they're, ha- they're singing together in the dream, in yeah. his dream. And then when she comes in, it's this implication of they're both singing this song together in their sleep. Yes. That's kind of amazing. That's amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah, they're made for each other. I also loved um, a kind of a marriage of Europe and America. Right? So it's a French chateau. It starts in Paris. It goes to, you know, the French countryside. It's in this kind of great palace. Right? But the very finale is straight out of a Western. Yeah. Right. She gets on his horse and chases him down through the prairie. On a steam train. <laughs> on a steam train. Yeah. Right. Until she gets her man. I mean, you know, that is very much an American ending. And right? actually, the shot that she, she gets off the horse because she fails to stop the train. And so in order to do that, she rides ahead, gets off the horse and stands on the tracks. And the shot of her on the tracks, again, is from below. And it has like a, it felt like a, like a Calamity Jane kind yeah. of hero Western woman shot. Yeah, very much so. And actually, it's very interesting because that the film's imaginary conciliation of classes that a princess could marry a tailor, right? You know, with, that's only conceivable in America. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So the, the film marries that kind of European sophistication, right, with this idea of American democracy. Yeah. Is it only conceivable in America? Because if you, th- or is it gendered? Because if you think about like Cinderella, Cinderella is the lowest of the low. You know, she's working class, cleaner woman. She ends up marrying the prince because yeah. But the thing about her. Cinderella is she is a noble woman. She's an aristocrat being hounded by her stepmother. Yeah, oh, was she? Yeah. Okay. You know, uh, so it's not the same at all. And actually, the thing is that you can imagine, like for example, in the Great Train Robbery, you can imagine a British uh, uh, film in which someone learns all the manners of, you know, an aristocrat and then passes for an aristocrat and then marries an aristocrat. Yeah. But you don't imagine someone who's a tailor and who's not embarrassed of being a tailor and so on marrying a princess, yeah, except in an American film. Right. Uh, I have to give that some thought. It's interesting. Well, can you think of any British examples? Well, I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to think. I mean, it, it, like I said, the first thing that occurred to me was that kind of fairy tale thing. And this film has a fairy tale aspect, as I pointed out early on. Like, she's a princess in a castle, and you have the, the three, I think they're aunts, but they have a kind of, um, uh, well, they're telling like fairy tale stories, right? And yeah, it ends yeah. up with this fairy tale tapestry that they've yes. sewn. My first so, thought of them, because they're shown also with shadows against the wall. You know, I thought, oh, there's a Macbeth vibe. I totally here. thought that yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, except they're nice witches. <laughs> yeah. um, but the, so the film is definitely it's playing to some degree with fairy tale ideas. It is. Um, uh-huh. And so that's kind of what made me think of like, you know, like that, like that fairy tale ending that the person at the bottom of the social pile can fall well, in love and marry the person at the top of it. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is kind of a fairy tale, but I also think that it's a fairy tale that is kind of I see as only possible 
within an American sensibility of a particular time. I actually also don't think, you know, that it's um, mm. a current American sensibility. You you can't imagine, you know, a Kardashian marrying her plumber. It would have to be like some basketball star or some pop star or whatever, right? Like, yeah. you know, but I think in this period, you do get a sense that part of being an American is part of considering yourself equal yeah. to anybody, right? Uh, and of reinventing your life and... You know, yeah, money matters, but class doesn't. Whereas I think, you know, one of the characteristics of, you know, British culture, for example, is how much class matters. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so it's kind of, I, I do think that, um, you know, the, it's a very American uh, uh, imaginary resolution mm. to class, um, to classes, to class different differences, because actually it's not even class conflict. Yeah. Right? Um, so... Yeah, well, it, yeah, it's like a Romeo and Juliet. Yes. <laughs> what could be more British? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Romeo and Juliet are both the signs of, <laughs> you know, kind of wealthy families. He's a tailor. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, actually, thinking, thinking of the American fairy tale thing, because that was in Borat, wasn't it? The, um, the, the They watched the Disney version of Trump meeting Melania. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually, you know... It did make me think of that Borat film because, uh, you know, the revelation that her first husband was 72 or something. Melania? No, Jeanette MacDonald. Oh, sorry. Uh, her, the, right. the marriage that had been arranged for her, right, yeah. you know, with her prince, he was 72. And he, yeah, he, yeah. she married at 19 or 16 and, he, and she's been widowed for three years. She's yes, only 22, right. right? And the advice that that girl gives... Uh, to to Borat's daughter is you know marry an old guy preferably after he's had one heart attack already. For very different reasons. Cause yes, because in, in in Borat she's saying literally says you can get money out of him. Yes, and here it's this social thing and it's enforced by the by the the parent of the family and so on. Yes, and yeah. notions of ancestry and yeah. so on. Um, so one of the interesting things that we looked at is that the the Kino Lerber disc. Uh, comes complete with all the information on the various state uh, censorship boards and the deletions that they asked for. Yeah, so this was a pre-code film, uh, 1932. This is, so the, the code came in in 1930, the Hays Code, censorship code, but it was only enforced nationwide by 1934. Um, so at this time states were applying it individually and they were coming up with their own dis decisions on what they wanted cut so the disc has i think ohio british columbia ontario ontario pennsylvania um so and they're all asking for different things to be cut but interestingly because then we saw the trailer because i'm always fascinated by trailers yeah trailers are the promise of a film it's what the you know the marketing people want to entice audiences with and uh, some of the best lines that were then censored are in the trailer. And you think, mm. you know, these uh, people in Pennsylvania and Ohio probably only saw the trailer <laughs> right before. Well, one, of, one, of the, um, one of the documents did say, we want this cut from the trailer. Ah. There was one line about that. I forget which one it was. But so it wasn't, they were seeing the film. Yeah. And they were saying in reel five and reel seven, we want this, this and this cut. And one of them said, no, the trailer needs this cut as well. Right. So the, the thing that's notable is that there is no pre-code of this film surviving. So what that means is a lot of the lines that we saw cut in the censorship records 
survived in the film. Yeah. In what the version of the film that survives is the one that was cut in 1949, I think it said, when Joseph Breen and the Hays Code, they, I think they were looking at a re-release for the film. They said, okay, we but, want this actually cut. Yeah, a re-release only to a very few art house cinemas. Yeah. I... And so it was cut when the, the code was in full flow. Nice. And that's the version of the film that survives. So a lot of the stuff that the states are asking for, we're like, oh, we can see that in the film. It's because yeah. that stuff does survive. There are some cuts that don't, though. We don't know yeah. what they are. We don't know what they are. Um, yeah. Well, we, we know what they asked for, but they're not in the film, obviously. That film does not exist. Yeah. Um, um, we can't finish a discussion of Love Me Tonight without talking about Myrna Loy. Oh. Right? Because, you know, Myrna Loy is one of the great stars of the classic period. Uh, and this was done just before she became one uh, with The Thin Man. Right. And she's a joy to watch and also completely wasted, I think. I mean, I, I, well, I think it's interesting. I loved her. I thought, God, what an infomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was stunning. And actually, it was, it was when she was showing up on screen and she's, you know, she's like lying down on the stairs and she wakes up and she sees, oh, a man. And then she looks up, oh, it's just my cousin. <laughs> you know? And that's around the time I was thinking, God, this is one of the most glamorous looking films I've, I've ever seen. Yeah. And I think to some degree, is, you know, everything that's happening in that castle is beautifully shot, the hair is beautiful, the makeup and the dresses and the lighting is astonishing. And also the quality of the transfer, the 4K restoration. It's beautiful. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and, and, but I think, you know, it's her appearance and her... And I tell, I tell you, because what's glamorous is not just the look, but it's... Her attitude. Attitude, stance, yeah. gesture. And it's all her that made me realise that. Yeah, and actually she's got that so much more than Jeanette MacDonald. Yeah. Yeah, a kind of... An, an insouciance, yeah, an ease um, that uh, Jeanette MacDonald, uh, Jeanette MacDonald always comes on a bit too um, emotional, yeah? yeah, she kind of overstates things a bit, uh, whereas Myrna Loy is like almost a definition of cool, you know, even, even when she's on the hunt for a man, yeah. she's kind of slouching. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what it reminded me of, it reminded me of the dynamic between Daisy and um, what's her friend's name? Uh, Jordan in The Great Gatsby. Well, ah. the, tw- the 2013 one in particular is what I'm thinking of with Carey Mulligan and Elizabeth Debicki. Which is interesting because Elizabeth Debicki was, this was before she was mm. a star, which I think she really is now. Yes, yeah, so um, she deserves to be. I don't know if she is, okay, but yeah. yeah. She, well, and certainly she's bigger now than she was at the time. Yeah. She was just a character actor in that. Mm. Um, but, you know, she again, she really had that kind of, actually, it's kind of, it's a, it's a blonde brunette thing. In both films, I think. You know, like the blonde, sort of um, more, uh, I suppose, virginal in some respects, although we know she's been married in this, but, you know, yes. uh, kind of innocent, looking for you know, a, a real true love. And then, on the other hand, the friend slash sister who is devilish and daring and mm. lithe and, you know, mm. sexy. Mm. All that kind of stuff. It's the same dynamic in both films. Yes. Uh, well, you really must uh, see more of Myrna Loy. Um, she is fantastic. She's one of the great presences of um, classic cinema. Uh, and she's always witty and she's always elegant and she's always kind of, you know, laid back, really. Um, yeah. Um, the other thing that I loved was all the supporting cast. Yeah. Yeah, all, all the waiters and the counts. And, you know, it's got kind of, you know, a whole bunch of comic actors, you know, all doing their bits and they're all kind of wonderful. Are they 
normally when we watch a film like this that has this great supporting cast around them, you're like, oh, I know them, I know them. You know them. So mm. did, were these actors that you knew a lot of? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, and I know them less than some, but, you know, people like Colleen Kale said, you know, all these people who are below the title, whose name doesn't appear on the poster, they would have been national celebrities, mm. right? Uh, I mean, they would have been national celebrities the way that, you know, supporting actors in a recurring sitcom in a BBC program would have been in 1975. Everybody would know who they are, mm. right? They would be nationally famous, just not stars, right? So people like Wesley Bruggles and C. Aubrey Smith and people like that, they would all, you know, they were all national names, you know? Yeah. Um, but not stars. The film wasn't built around them, yeah. So, um, tell me about Ruben Mamoulian. Because I don't know him at I've not heard his name till today. Ah, well, um, Ruben Mamoulian is one of the most famous uh, directors in Hollywood history. He's less well-known uh, than some other people because he didn't have as many hits. And also because he returned uh, to Broadway uh, very regularly. And so he did things like Oklahoma on Broadway, mm. right? But in the 1930s, let me just look him up in... Uh, IMDb, and then I'll go through his credits. He had very big hits in the early 1930s, so he did Applause, which has kind of, you know, an extraordinary roving camera. Yeah, it's a musical, um, but it's kind of known for the movement that it gave the camera in 1929. Then it did what many people, including Nicky Smith, thinks is the definitive version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, uh, with Frederick March, uh, and it is indeed fantastic. And then very famously, Queen Christina with uh, Garbo, yeah, where uh, Queen Christina's lesbianism is um, at least more than hinted at. Yeah? Mm. It's demonstrated without being said. And all of these films have brilliant cinematic devices so that, you know, Queen Christina ends with um, a close-up, an incredible close-up of Garbo staring out to sea which, you know, I always thought it was a freeze frame, but actually it's not. It's just her, yeah, looking at her future, having given up her throne, <laughs> right? And, and on her way um, to Rome. So uh, he had less success uh, later on uh, in the 1940s, though uh, uh, The Mark of Zorro and Blood and Sand were very big hits. Um, and then really, from that period... Um, nothing really stands out in film, uh, though very much, you know, he is a figure on Broadway as well. But then he does Silk Stockings uh, in, um, I think, 57, um, which is a Cole Porter musical with Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse, right. in which, you know, it's just fantastic with music by Cole Porter. Um, just the color, the use of color alone is a thing of real beauty in the film. Mm. Yeah, so so a very distinguished uh, career, uh, though he never reached the heights that he had in this period, yeah, mm. in the early 1930s. Yeah, I mean, if you think uh, about this run of films, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Love Me Tonight and Queen Christina, that is kind of something, really. Yeah. And we were commenting how expensive this film was, because on the Blu-ray as well, there are these production documents yes. with the breakdown of budgets and things like that. And the, uh, the overall budget was just under a million dollars. Yeah. And this is very expensive for the time. It is, especially, you know, we had this discussion last week that the Philadelphia story cost more or less the same as this film. But this was like in 1940, 
right? Mm -hmm. And then we talked about the shop around the corner costing half. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see why, in a way, the sets and the costumes and yeah, yeah. they're all of a different order. But it's also like a considerable amount of time later when, you know, costs kind of rose very considerably. Yeah, by 1940. And we also um, noticed that uh, $210,000, over a fifth of the budget, was on the cast. Which yeah. you said sounded like quite a lot. Yes, and I think a lot of that must have gone to Maurice Shirley, actually. Yeah. Yeah, who's billed above the title on his own. So this is before they began to be co-starred, yeah? And we should talk about him, because we've not talked about him yet. He is the guy. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, he, I think he's one of the most fascinating kind of uh, figures in... 20th century show business uh you know he was a working class uh uh guy from menil montant yeah which is like the equivalent of saying you're a cockney or something in, in london right right is that like an area of paris it's like an area of paris um it's like a real working class kind of mm -hmm. uh poor area of paris um and and in france you know him being from menil montant is part of his star persona whereas of course you know, in America, he personified sophistication and class and, yeah, and so on. Um, he made a very famous pairing with Miss Tinguette, yeah, um, a huge uh, star in France, in the period just, you know, around and after the war. Because the thing about uh, Chevalier, I mean, I don't know when he was born, yeah, but he was already on the stage by the teens, yeah. He was born in uh, 1888. 1888, there you go. Yeah, so, uh, so he would have been 20 in 1908, yeah? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so he's, you know, he, he, he was in French music hall kind of from then on, and then, you know, quite a considerable success, a big star already, actually, in the teens, paired with Mistinguet. Um And then, you know, he, um, he, he was a huge hit in London, uh, in music hall, he was a huge hit in New York, and actually his being a hit in New York is what gave him his American career. He slipped a little bit in the mid-30s. I think maybe his last um, American film was maybe, what, 35, 37, something like that? Yeah, in between that time? I can't tell off the top of my head, but maybe. Okay, well, let's look it up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, um, I'm, I'm saying this all off the top of my head. Oh, here we are. Um... So 1934, this is from Wikipedia, in 1934 he starred in the first sound film of the Franz Lehart operetta The Merry Widow, one of his best known films, though he felt his role was too narrow and repetitive. He then signed with MGM for The Man from the Folie Bergère, his own favourite of his films. After a disagreement over his star billing, he returned to France in 1935 okay, to receive his musical career. That's right. And um, basically, he got tainted in World War II. Uh, though some people say unfairly because he entertained German troops, right? Right. Uh, and his excuse was that he had no choice. <laughs> yeah. 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 So he was accused of collaboration after the war and it took him a while to clean up his name. And then he reappeared with uh, renewed uh, success uh, in Hollywood, again, in musicals, uh, making a comeback of sorts with Gigi in 1958, in which he plays the old Rouet, yeah? So kind of, you know, an old version of the sophisticated, you know, Boulevardier, Boulevardier of uh, his earlier films, yeah? And he remained a huge star until he died, really. It says here, uh, again, this is Wikipedia, and the source is uh, 
With Love, the autobiography of Maurice Chevalier uh, from 1960. This is in 1941. The Nazis knew, this is a quote from Wikipedia, the Nazis knew that he was harbouring a Jewish family in the south of France and put pressure on him to perform in Berlin and sing for the collaborating radio station Radio Paris. He refused but did perform for prisoners of war in Germany at the same camp where he'd been held captive in World War I and succeeded in getting 10 French soldiers freed in exchange. In 1942, Chevalier was named on a list of French collaborators with Germany to be killed during the war or tried after it. Oh, so a complicated time, yes. sounds like. Indeed. So, yeah, so that's it about Chevalier. I love him, you know, because... Oh, his fabulousness. I thought, I, I said to you, he's a real show-off. Yes. We said this at some point when he was bounding up the stairs. Yes. You were saying, oh, you know, he, he knows how to perform and he came from music hall. And it's like, you really feel that he, he, he understands how to entertain an audience and My feels God, their presence. The Apache number... Uh, which, you know, is is one that is bound to raise the hairs <laughs> of, you know, feminist arms. It's like, you know, it brings heckles. I mean, <laughs> the ideas expressed in that song. Um, but the way he's filmed singing it with his shadow on the wall, right, and actually his performing of it, right, is really quite extraordinary. I mean, yeah. you know, he's like a real showbiz animal, you can tell. You know, you, you can imagine kind of him stopping the show, like... You know, at the palace, <laughs> like uh, five times a day. <laughs> yeah. He shows up in the he shows up in the chateau for the first time, and he, he wanders. Uh, he's looking for the fella who owes him money, and he's directed through, and he comes across the aunts, and he says hello, or he says mademoiselle, and they all kind of they're a beautiful little sort of coven of like chattering, yes. you know, exchanging uh, lines of dialogue between them. They're lovely, and they say, "Oh, what a smile!" And yes. you're like, "Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean." Yes, yes. <laughs> He could yes. disarm you. Yeah, he is a he is a joyful presence. I mean, I'm I've shown clips of him before. He's wonderful with Lubitsch, and you know, students find him very irritating. Yeah, because he's so French, and he's so full of himself. <laughs> yeah, uh, always. Um, but I I see that as a kind of a joyful, energetic kind of you know uh, thing. I mean, you know, he, he kind of. Uh, emanates energy and joy. Yeah. I think that may be the difference. I can understand that, you see. And I, I think that might be the difference between watching the whole film or watching a clip. Yes. I think in a clip, you don't have the context of who yeah. he is and all the rest. And you know, and so you go, who is this guy? Whereas, you know, I think I might have felt the same, I think back on watching Clooney Brown with um, Charles Boyer. Yes. And I kind of think, if I had just seen the clip of him by the fireplace sort of basically pointing at his dick yes. in that scene is what he does. You know, I go, no, I don't like this guy. But throughout the film, you understand who the guy is and he plays off the rest. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to see it in context, I think. He is. Um, though, you know, Chevalier is a star uh, and nowhere near the actor uh, that Charles Boyer is. So Boyer yeah. is the better actor, yeah, the more talented sure. actor, but he's not the star that Chevalier is. Well, he was a very big star, but, you know... Um, yeah, Chevalier is a star. He's not a very subtle actor. Yeah, you know, he's but a he's a great showbiz performer. Mm. Yeah, um, and you know, I mean, so, sometimes people can be both, like you know, somebody like Sinatra, but usually they're not. Mm. Um, yeah. So, anyway, highly recommended. A really stylized film. Oh, it's it's, fantastic. it's gloriously inventive. Yeah. It's, it's so much more the slow motion. Yeah, the, the the horses riding off slow motion. I mean, it is there is there any uh, purpose to it, or I don't know, maybe, but it's just beautiful and striking and so high fidelity. 
Well, also it creates rhythms. Yeah. So yeah. everything in the film happens to a rhythm. Yeah. And actually, the slowing down the film, the speeding it up, it's all part of creating a particular rhythm to a scene. Yeah, it's interesting because the speeding up happens before that when when he he rides off on the the uh, the wild horse essentially yes. the untamed horse. And it's the, the the camera is under cranked and it's very conspicuous that mm. it's just going way faster than a horse <laughs> can mm. actually go. And then that whole kind of sequence that starts with that ends with all the horses, him saving the deer or the stag, and all the horses riding off in super slow motion. It's yes. fascinating. I don't think I've seen super slow motion in a film from this era before. Huh. I'm sure it must have happened, but I, it just it was very novel. Yes. Um, the bit where uh, uh, the um, the aunts discover that he's just a tailor. Oh no, sorry, they um yes, they said they discover that he's a tailor and they come downstairs yeah. and it's and it, and they go, Oh, oh, oh no, oh. Yeah. but it takes so long to do it, you know, it's yes. really extended and they keep on doing it. And then they go to the room where the drawing room everyone's there, um and it's they announce it and then they knock a, a vase off. And the vase yeah. hits the floor and smashes, but it smashes with like a thunderclap. Yeah. You know? Again, just uh, expressive and inventive. Yeah. And uh, you wouldn't make that decision without some creativity. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the film is kind of musical almost in its DNA. Yeah. The the scenes are paced. Yeah. They, they have a rhythm and it's either created through dialogue or through the way the characters walk or through the way that they talk to each other in kind of hitting different notes. Yeah. Mm. Um, but everything is creating a kind of a pace and a rhythm. Uh, formally, yeah, all the, the movement of elements. the camera as well. Yeah. You mentioned movement of the camera in things some of his other films, but here it's a, a huge component. I noticed it from the start um, when um, maybe it's maybe it's not quite right at the beginning, but I think when uh, Chevalier leaves his apartment mm. and he's wandering through Paris, saying hello to people, the camera's following him and it's very active. Yes. You know, it's, uh, there, there are movements in and movements out and pans and whips and. Uh, it, 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 like I say, this this led me to this kind of thing. Oh, have I seen this level of energy in films mm. like this before? And I felt like I hadn't. Mm. It's hugely, hugely energetic and and visually exciting. Mm. So now I must show you the Lubitsch. <laughs> is it going to be as good as this? Because I really love this. Oh, I think uh, the Lubitsch is better. You know, like of course you do. Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> um, you know, uh, both. Uh, uh, one Hour With You, and particularly The Merry Widow, which has one of my favorite scenes, you know, in all of all time, yeah. She's, uh, she plays uh, the richest woman in this little principality or duchy in the middle of Europe, in the middle of nowhere. And actually, the film is so witty. Varsovia, not Varsovia, or something like that. Anyway, the film begins by saying something like that, you know. Uh, and then it begins to zoom into a map of Europe, Mm. Right, and it zooms and zooms and zooms, and you still don't see Varsovia. And finally, someone takes out their magnifying glass oh, yeah. of Varsovia. It's like that thing in, in is it Arthur, uh, when he's with the girl at the start, and she's a prostitute, and then like his family comes in, and he says she's a princess of a very small country. They just had the whole place carpeted. <laughs> uh. So, um, anyway, I'm very glad uh, I bought uh, uh, this. Uh, I bought it under false pretenses because I thought it was one hour with you. I thought it was a restored version of one hour with you. Uh, but I'm very glad uh, that well, uh, I bought it and that we saw it together. It's a hell of a discovery, isn't it? Yes. Cracking film. I really yes. liked it. Um, so, um, 
Yes, give it a go if you get the chance. Uh, we are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>